welcome to the It Works on My Computer podcast. On today's show, Roxana talks to Charity Majors, CTO at Honeycomb IO, about the true meaning and value of observability, Friday deploys, and avoiding snake oil salesmen in the modern world of DevOps. Enjoy the show. Hello, Charity. Thank you for talking with us and welcome. Reading a bit about you, I found that we have some similar things that uh, in our past, I'm like a very small clone of you, really. <laughs> a more imperfect one. Uh, so I've started my uh, career as both a, as a developer, then I went a bit more to operations. And I really genuinely feel you because I always end up doing operations and databases. And <laughs> I, I, it's not that I love to do that. I always end up doing it. <laughs> And then I switched more to what is considered to be DevOps and a DevOps engineer. Now I'm, I'm continuously arguing that it's not a role, it's a culture. There you go. And now I'm a CTO and similar to you, I'm more of a doing podcasts and creating a community and uh, a bit further from the technical side, with that, which I love, <laughs> but still doing that. And very, very thankful to where I'm now. Yeah. So if you can tell us a bit about your history and your journey up now. Well, um, much like you, I guess, I was a, a bit an engineer. I've always gravitated towards the operations side of the house um, because I, 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 I like the, um, the intensity of it, I guess. I uh, started Honeycomb about six and a half years ago. and. Um, was CEO for the first three and a half years. I've been CTO ever since. Switched places with my co-founder Christine, and mm-hmm. um, I I miss doing technical work too. <laughs> I get it totally. So, how does your day look like right now uh, as a, as a CTO? And then I'll share how it looks for me, and we'll see if we have some similarities. Sure. Well, gosh, every day is different. You know, when, when you're an engineer, I think there's a lot more regularity to your days because you're you're planning to build things. You're, you know, you're executing on things. Uh, when you're, you know, I feel like when you're an engineer, your job is to really set aside time to go deep on on things and, and build things and understand things. When you're a manager, your job is to be interruptible and to spend you know a lot of time responding to things, reacting to things, and and I spend a lot of time doing podcasts. I spend a lot of time writing. I've spent a lot of time for the past three years dealing with the book, uh, which just got published. And now I find that I'm, I'm having a hard time motivating myself to actually do any writing. Whereas before I was fine with it. And now I'm just like, I don't feel like I could do any more writing. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's kind of whatever the company needs to be on a given day, whether that's recruiting or interviewing or, you know, working on internal culture and hiring practices and so forth. Or if it's, you know, more external, like, um, evangelism for for the company or for observability or or whatever. So how does that match up with you? Exactly. I mean, I I, I liked the whatever's needed. I I totally understand that. So whatever's needed, both from the, the the technical side and even the customer success and talking with clients and being involved within the product and even yeah. with engineering and then talking and doing podcasts. But I I, I also love doing that because I get to talk a lot with. Wonderful people. Are you an extrovert? 
Um, not sure. I think I am. I love talking. So do you, do you get a lot of energy out of being with people or do you get a lot of energy out of being alone? Oh, no. Just being with people. I mean, I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I, I can't. I, I, I can't be alone. Really? <laughs> I, I, no, no, yeah, no. I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I am very much an introvert and it takes a lot of energy out of me. So I have to, I've learned to be very careful with how I, I shepherd my energy and, and, you know, giving myself you know, I can't do meetings back to back one after the other. I have to like do have a half an hour, an hour between them so that I could kind of recharge so that I have enough energy to give again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a, a bit about your book because you published Observability Engineering. And I have to say that I went through it. I haven't read all of it. I read some half and some of it. First, I want to congratulate you because it's oh, really you. wonderful written. I mean, it's, I think it's the, uh, the most beautiful written technical book that I've ever read. Oh, I mean, thank it, you. Yes. And I, I loved the, the, how, how the book started. I think it's a bit philosophical at the start. It talks about yeah. a, a, a lot of concepts. It takes observability. It takes some, um, it takes the sense of what observability is viewed in, in the mainstream media and uh, how, yeah. how people want to sell observability, which, and sometimes they say sell uh, monitoring, really. It was a little bit of a risk, I think. And, and you can see like our reviews at Amazon, some people don't make it out of that first section. They're like, this isn't a technical book. Why are you just telling us all about this stuff? And and I get that. You know, a lot of people look to these books for copy-pastable, you know, snippets of things that they can just look, you know, that they can just copy over to their, you know, whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people are like, I, w- I thought you were going to teach me how to use Prometheus with this. And I'm just like, ah. You know, if you do read farther on in the book, you do get to some very deeply technical stuff. Like we talk about, you know, the internals of storage engines and how you can build one for observability. We talk about instrumenting your code with open telemetry um but because because in my in my view there's been such a shift in the way that we in, in what our systems look like it used to be you had the app the database the web tier just like the three-tier model and, and and monitoring worked really well for that and i felt felt like people needed to understand why that isn't working for them because a lot of people have had this experience where they're using their tools they're using tools they're banning their systems and it feels like you you just hit a wall and suddenly what worked for you stops working for you and it's really kind of terrifying and 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 you're feeling kind of like what what's wrong is it me is it you know and 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 like the point is that no things are changing like systems are changing our users expectations are changing our our need to like be able to understand at a very fine grade level because it's not about understand it's not about operating we don't operate systems anymore right we build them and it used to be that if you're an operator like you never really looked inside the black box right you treated the application like this black box somebody else would bother with you know and this was like the dividing line right you either built it and understood it or you ran it and understood that and that just doesn't work anymore you can't you can't write the software without understanding how to how to understand it how to use it and you can't run the software without understanding how to write it and how to use it and so like it's like it's like the tools that we used to use for debugging and understanding software were like debuggers and things that you used offline and because so much of your code is not your code anymore it's your code running in the environment that's running in and you'd be used by the users who are using it and that that really Mm -hmm. that intersection that area of overlap right that's mm-hmm. all that matters. And so, yeah. you know, the tools that were offline don't aren't, aren't enough anymore. And the, the, the tools just like 
outside of your code aren't enough anymore. And so I, I think we did spend a lot, maybe too much time, like just trying to discuss that. But but the thing is that like we didn't want people, we wanted people to understand some of these things from first principles because there's a lot of snake oil out there. There are a lot of people who are just trying to sell you a load of crap for a lot mm-hmm. of money and they're using the same exact words. And so if you don't understand the concepts, you're going to get taken for a ride. Yeah, yeah. So you made three points that remain with me that I, I really adored what you said. So the first one is we do need to transition to observability. And the point was with monolithic applications or structures that, like you said, a web server, database, a cache, and that, that's it, you had intuition. When you're the, when you were debugging things, you could use your intuition. So monitoring you think of some metrics and you think yeah. of metrics based on the problems that you've seen before happen in such environments. Mm-hmm. But now we've shifted to microservices and you have thousands of them and it's not intuitive anymore. There are a combination of states that you haven't uh, seen before that you have no idea to how to start debugging, which means that in the first place, you don't know what metric you're looking for. And that's one of the shifts that Banishan is also uh, trying to do with environments as a service. Now, when developing a monolith, people can do it. Developers can make their code up to date even locally. But when there are hundreds of services and teams of the tens of developers working, how do you do that? It's not intuitive anymore. So that was the, the first point that when, and, and this is something that I, I, I see that even though technology is shifting and it's changing incredibly rapid, the way that developers work and some of the tools are not changing enough to support development flows. And the second point, which is related to the first, is that um, uh, monitoring and metrics was was considered something that that sysadmins were doing, right, for for seeing how the production looks like. But now, with the DevOps culture and shifting left, developers care about how their application reacts, about the performance, which means that observability is not for the sysadmin. It's not for that operations engineer. It's for all the engineering team. And I think that's a great point that that the book is making on why observability is so important in the development flow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Perfect. So let's see about Honeycomb. So what are you excited about today and and in the future? And also tell us a bit about Honeycomb and about observability. Sure. Um, Well, Honeycomb is, um, you know, a tool that was very much purpose built for for observability from the ground up. Um, And, you know, I think if you accept the definition that observability is about, you know, the definition of observability from a systems engineering perspective is that uh, you know, observability is the mathematical dual of controllability, and um, it refers to how well can you understand the insides of your system just by looking at it from the outside. You know, how how much can you understand any internal state that your that your system can get into just by you know asking questions and observing it and interrogating it from the outside. And so, I think if you if you accept that definition, then there are things that precede like a technical definition that proceeds from that about observability, which is like, well, you mentioned, you mentioned metrics um, and how you have to like predict them in advance. You have to decide up front, I want to capture this specific metric, right? 
Uh, and a metric, there are like big end metrics and, and little end metrics. Big end metrics is just like little end metrics are just like generically like any numbers that have to do with understanding your systems. But then there's a metric metric, as it just means it's a number with some tags appended. And so that number that you capture might be um, the number of users from Germany who are on iOS devices using the German language pack uh, running build ID five and uh, using this particular like device ID right now like device ID obviously is a, a it is a dimension that has very high cardinality meaning very a very high number of unique um, IDs you cannot possibly predict all of the device IDs that are going to connect to your system right so you can't you, you can't have observability just by using metrics because you have to decide up front what every single one of those numbers is going to be. Because um, the source of truth for monitoring is is the metric, the big end metric. The source of, of truth for observability has to be these arbitrarily wide structured data blobs where every single one of those, you know, every, like which means you can have as many key value pairs as you want in that blob, um, each one of which, you know, represents something about the environment. But crucially, they don't have to be as specific as metrics. They can be key value pairs that can be very high cardinality. You know, so obviously, if you want to have uh, observability, you need to be able to support high cardinality, high dimensionality, which means, you know, the width of that of that row, because anytime you have schemas or some sort of fixed, like this is the def this is the definition, this is the data type that you need to submit. Here are the data types. We'll, we'll, then you don't have observability because you need you can't predict all of the types of dimensions that you're going to need up front. Right. And so, you know. Um, high cardinality, high dimensionality. It also requires an interface that's very much explorable, one that doesn't just lock you into like dashboards. You know, creating dashboards, you're like, is a way of saying, okay, these are the numbers I'm going to have to care about in the future, um, which is, again, very anathema to observability. They're great for monitoring. Dashboards are great for lots of things, but they're not observability. They don't help you understand any random, you know, state that your system get into just by looking at it from the outside. Um, so Honeycomb is, I think, the first, I would say, we at Lightstep are, are really still the only two companies out there that actually do observability. You've got a lot of companies out there that are repurposing their monitoring project, their, their like monitoring pro products, their logging products, their tracing products to, to, to call them observability. But they aren't because, you know, they're the same old tools um, branded with observability. Uh, honeycomb as anyone who's been listening to me for ages <laughs> well no it's not it's not like that right you you can set these arbitrarily wide you know dip, um, blobs in there and then you could slice and dice you can ask as many new questions about them as you want you can take that those blobs you can say well okay show me that same but show me you now for companies that are coming for users that are coming from the netherlands or you know, break down by all of the unique um, uh, device types that you've ever gotten or break down by all the unique you know, device IDs that you've ever gotten and then show me which of them are sending the most requests or or send me, show me which of them have the most errors or show me which of them, you know, give me the 90th percentile of all of them and then show me which of the ones in the, in the 90th percentile, you know, have the longest running queries or are using this particular query ID or, you know, you could just chain together all of these different questions um, to, to get to the answer, which is, you know, the experience that I had had many years ago where I was just like, I can't, I can't live without this tool anymore. Uh, so Honeycomb, we've gotten to the place, we were really wandering in the wilderness for the first three or four years because it was so different from what people had heard about. But it, you know, and it takes, it takes some, I wouldn't say it's harder. It's actually a lot easier than using older tools because, <laughs> because, I, because frankly, the older tools were terrible and they were hard to use. 
And it's a lot easier to use if you can just ask the question you want to ask and just like do what you want to do. Um, but it does require a bit of a mental model and a mental shift. And, you know, it took a few years for that to really click with people. But now um, we're growing really rapidly. We've got an amazing team of engineers, product people, designers. One of the things that I'm really most happy about and, and proudest of is just that, you know, Christine and I are not 22-year-old founders. We've we've been, you know, we've been around the block a few times. We've We've lived through startups that, you know, broke our hearts. And and I feel like it's been really important to us to create a company where we don't make the same old mistakes. Um, and, and that means one of the things that we feel really, really strongly about is um, that, you know, engineers are not better than everyone else. And a lot of Silicon Valley, you'll, you'll get this, this sense that like the engineers are the only people that matter. And right from the beginning, like we took the tact that, you know, we wouldn't hire anybody in the interview who talks shit about sales or marketing or who acts like those roles weren't just as important as theirs. Um, and that's that's the lie that, you know, we will stick to because it doesn't matter how great the software that you write is if nobody can find it, if nobody could buy it, if nobody could use it. Right. All of the all of the parts of the elephant matter. So, well, I have to say that in my, you know, younger years, I used to have this misconception. about oh, me too. I was a total snob. I mean, I came from after my my second job as embedded programmer i i felt like i was so much here than the rest of the world, you know because i was doing c programming so low level so smart but um then after i i i mean and even when founding a, creating a startup you start to realize i mean develop i mean and engineers can do things but if they're not guided and if they're misguided i mean um it's and with our first customers it was not about the 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 how how reliable your product is it was not about that because if you don't have if you are ashamed if you're not ashamed when you release your product then it's too late you have to go you have you have to test it you have to see that it brings value and if you're not using your product with the bugs, without the bugs, then it's a problem because then you're not solving a problem then you already that that you had. So I, I feel that there is a bit of I, I think it's about education really. I think that technical people, engineers don't realize how much they depend, how much their salary depends on the sales team, on the marketing team, or on SDRs, or on uh, Yeah, it's like any function when it's done well, it's invisible. Yeah, yeah. But but that's with DevOps, right? That's with DevOps mm -hmm. and system administrator. You don't know if they've done their you don't job. Know. Yep. Uh, if the, if you don't have a disaster and you see that yep. disaster recovery mechanism go well and start doing things, then you realize, oh, he's doing things. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now that we've shifted and let's talk a bit about developers. So technology is changing. The problem of it works on my computers, it was half resolved by Docker, but then came microservices and then you have a hundred of them. So you're still drifting from the production state. We have much more. We have CICDs now. There are a lot of tools that you can use to ensure and testing tools, but still developers don't, don't, uh, and release uh, teams don't release on Friday. Why is that? Because they don't have any confidence in their deploys because they're so broken and so breaky and they don't want to ruin their weekends, which I get. But the solution is not to go, OK, so we won't deploy anytime. The, the solution is to, if it hurts, do it more, right? If it hurts, do it more. Make it so that it's fast because it's, you know, if, if it takes you four hours to deploy your code or even an hour or two, 
I get it. I get why you wouldn't want to do that very often. But it, if it takes 10 minutes, it happens automatically after every every commit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then pretty quickly, you will have a deploy system that you can rely on. And the benefits to your company will, will the ripple effects like are, are almost too many to, to deem because, you know, what you really want as an engineer is you want to be able to treat production like a REPL, right? You want to, you need to be able, you want to have that, that delay be as slow as possible so that you're, you're basically like writing code and watching it run, right? And, and like, we're not quite there yet technically, but you could certainly get it, you know, out within 15 minutes, you know, and look at it, you know, at least to some, you know, I'm making some sweet, sweeping statements. It does depend, right? What your industry is, what your, um, what your stack is, what your, but like there are, there are plenty of very large companies who, larger than you would think, who have taken this to heart and who have the ability to get their code out into a live environment so the developers can watch it run in production within minutes. And, you know, it can be done. It's just that we don't put our energy in it because we don't see it as valuable. Uh, but it's incredibly valuable because those few minutes after you've written that code are the best time to find bugs because your your knowledge of it your your every when you've written just written the code you understand why you why you did it what you did what you didn't do what didn't work what the functions are named what the what you know what the variables are named what to look for right when you're writing your code you should be thinking about how am I going to understand if this is working or not you know what should I look at what instrumentation should I add. And then, you know, you merge it, you look at it, and you ask yourself, is it doing what I expected it to do? Can I see my code run? And does anything else look weird, right? And if you do that, if you have that feedback loop, you will find upwards of 80% of all problems that you'll ever deploy. And the, the cost of fighting and fixing those problems goes up exponentially from the moment that you write them. So anything you could do to, as you said earlier, shift that left mm-hmm. to make it so that, you know, production is part of your development environment effectively to make it so that you're only deploying your changes. Mm-hmm. Like one of the biggest problems that people do is because they're afraid of deploys, they slow down and they deploy less often yeah. and they batch up multiple people's changes and deploy them all together at once. Mm-hmm. And the more that the slower you're going and the more changes you're batching together, the more guaranteed you are to break something when you finally yeah. do. Yeah. And it's horrible with the merging at the end of it been there done that with release branches well okay let's push oh, everything here and then you're a, a day before releasing and you know you have to release and someone else puts something there and it's not working and you start have that's to start. why the whole model of the day before the release you have to merge before release it's just it doesn't work it, it causes it causes so much breakage and pain and problems yeah, and frustration and frustration decreases productivity. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the the things that Banishal aims to do is first we say that we want to decrease, uh, we make want to make the feedback loop uh, a smaller. So which means that every time you do a change, you get to have an environment that is identical to the production in in the sense that production becomes part of your development environment, right? So. I don't believe that any environment can ever be identical to production. Of course, but if it is, uh, if it is, if you're testing locally, it surely will not be. If you're happy, if you do have cloud native yeah, services, yeah, I feel like that's kind of a pro- false promise. If you're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to do, I think you have to get it into production. You can't say an environment right. is like production because part of production is the user traffic. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's that's perfectly uh, fine. I mean, uh, I get. 
how the way I see it is first you have to test it. You have to test it. But if it is a replica of the production, first you have to do it and not test it locally and test it with certain or a bigger similarity to production. And someone did ask me once what what is what I consider to be an ideal CICD. And an ideal CICD for me is when developers can push code to production. If that code is wrong, then it's, it will not run or it will be immediately uh, rollbacked if it has uh, issues. And you see, you've seen now with the shift that uh, for testing that uh, there are not as many uh, businesses that have uh, testing uh, teams. They they they're they're going to automation tests and they do they uh, they don't do anything manual, which means every time developers write anything, it gets tested automatically and it can get it gets uh, deployed automatically into the production environment uh, as soon as the tests uh, end. What Vanishel wants to do is provide those environments in which developers can have the state to see only their single change being tested. And of course, when, if, you, if they are doing a multiple releases, they can test them individually and they can test them together, not on the local machine, not on a static instance that queues tests, but on what we call ephemeral environments. And I feel that observability and environments as a service c come together very, very good. Because first, you allow with an environment, you create the state of the change, yeah. which you can yeah, observe. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it depends. It, it depends. Like, I could see some value in that. But honestly, if, if you know, every company has limited engineering cycles to invest, and I, I would definitely invest, I would definitely always recommend that they invest in getting the code into production fast before mm. spending time fussing with other environments even if they are you know I, I you'll catch some marginal amount of extra bugs by deploying to a production like environment but most bugs you will never catch until they're in production and so just getting yeah. it there as quickly as possible is how yeah. I would recommend people yeah I, I, I totally agree with that traffic is one of the things that does matter and there are more things and one one interesting type of for example, in a canary deployment, a one uh, night's tweak was you don't put the new version alongside the, the containers or the instances that have run until them. No, you spawn them uh, an old one and a new one in parallel because it matters even the state, how much time has that container or old application has been running because of course it matters. It's a different state. Yeah. We can't deploy everything in production without testing it at all. Can we? Sure. Absolutely. We can? No, no, no. Sure. You absolutely have to test. Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's go a little bit forward about DevOps content. So you, you do have a podcast and you write a lot and you say you said that right now you're finding it a, a little bit hard, but just because you've already, uh, you've recently published, what do you think about the content that's currently uh, uh, on DevOps? Is it, is it enough? Is it correctly directed or is it just marketed a lot? I don't know. I feel like the DevOps, con DevOps content, I don't know that I've, Honestly, I feel like DevOps is a concept that is becoming less and less relevant, honestly, um, mm -hmm. because I feel like it was a really necessary first step. Like, I feel like the original sin of engineering was when we divided DevOps in the first place, because that was just it was it was just a bad idea. It was a terrible idea. I understand why we, we, we tried it, because, you know, we were having trouble scaling ourselves and 
it seemed plausible that this might be a, a way to that it could work. It was it was terrible. Um, we should we should never we should never have separated them. Right, operating your yeah. code is indivisible from yeah. from developing your code. Um, and and there was a big schism there that you know it took many years to kind of go. Okay, this was a bad idea. Let's lift, knit them back together. But you know the idea of like having you know dev and ops working really closely together is I think kind of an archaic one that just it, it arises from like healing that split. Like I think that what we're starting to see is that is that companies are hiring engineers to write and ship code. Some of those engineers will be infrastructure engineers who write and ship infrastructure mm-hmm. code. Some of them will be product engineers who write and ship product code. And there will always be like subject matter experts, like subject matter experts in, you know, QA, subject matter experts in SRE, subject matter experts in like database engineering. Um, but for the most part, I think we're just moving to a very generalist engineer who writes and ships and owns their code in production. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, as a leader, what are the most important things in creating that kind of culture? Um, it depends. I mean, the answer to everything is it depends. Um, uh, it depends on on what you're trying to counteract for, what you're trying to optimize for. Um, respect is certainly one thing that you can't, you know, if you don't, if you're an engineer, if you're a software engineer and you think that writing code is superior to making code run and, mm-hmm. and serve users, yeah. then, you know, that's not going to work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're just like, if you're an engineer who thinks that you're superior to mm-hmm. all the other, you know, fields, it isn't going to work very well. Um, I think that um, creating a culture where, you know, no job is seen as too trivial of respect is big. Um, I don't know. Is there something you have in mind? Uh, no, I mean, the, the respect is one thing that I totally agree. One, uh, another one is responsibility for, for, mm-hmm. for, for all the individuals. And I did like what you said, and no task is, uh, uh, is too little. I mean, I, I think that, and it's okay to be hands-on. It, it, it's okay. I mean, no matter the position, it's, of course, delegating is really important, but you don't, uh, I mean, if you have, you know, if, if there is someone that you can help and it's quicker for you to do it, you should do it. doesn't really matter if it's just, you know, if it's a QA or an engineer and you're in a leadership position or even with management position. And I also think that I also adore is, you know, uh, and especially in a company that is providing a technical solution. I, and I, I've done some, uh, I don't know if I, my team did like them. I've done some, um, some, some uh, meetings with all the team. We, we, we shared some technical knowledge throughout the company, both the sales team and, uh, um, and, and the marketing team. One time we would had a Kubernetes hackathon in which we, we all of the, all of us, all, all of the company wrote a bit of Kubernetes there. So, so everybody knows what we're doing, in fact. And what about some indicators of a high performing team? Well, um, I think high performing teams, um, have a very short time to deployment like 15 mm-hmm. minutes or less, ideally. I think that high-performing teams are ones that have good observability so they can tell what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think high-performing teams are ones that are not exhausted or overworked. Yeah, I think high-performing teams are ones that have a a, a spread of, of levels so that, you know, people, people get a chance to mentor and teach. And you don't just have a bunch of super senior engineers all kind of stuffed in there. 
all doing stuff that's boring to them half the time. I think that high-performing teams are ones that take things like reliability seriously and developer tooling seriously because, you know, you're you're constantly subject to entropy and things are getting harder and slower and you're accumulating responsibilities. So high-performing teams are ones that learn how to say no and how to deprecate and how to, you know, do migrations and get rid of technical debt. They're the ones that know how to focus on what matters for the business um, and take the cues of what matters for technology from what matters for, for the business. Um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Let me just uh, ask one more question before uh, let's try to start wrapping it up so you can go mm-hmm. drink uh, a warm tea. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so because uh, I said it works on my computer and this problem yeah. is persistent, it still exists. So what do you think uh, developers need to have? What do leaders need to do so we don't have to worry uh, about it works on my computer? And thankfully, if we solve that, we also solve the Friday deployments. What do we have to do to get rid of it? Sorry, to get rid of what exactly? Works on my computer. Works on my computer. Um, I tested on prod. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I do have a T-shirt on that says "Test and prod or live a lie." <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, it, I, I usually the first thing I will tell people who are asking about this is put your developers on call because they should learn pretty quickly that production is all that matters. <laughs> and I wanted to ask. What uh, what we should do now to make developers' life easier? But I guess that some of the uh, this is some a question that you already answered with. Uh, yeah, you. I mean, in if you make releases very fast at the beginning, it, it's gonna be uncomfortable. But later yeah. on, it's it's going to be much more. It's the only way. Software speed is safety when it comes to software. Mm-hmm. Shipping lots of small changes right regularly, like like a heartbeat. Right, mm-hmm. it should be as boring and as nothing burger as just like as regular and as predictable as a heartbeat. That's when software is safe. And do you think that integrating observability more and more with development teams? Do you think that there is some some shifting, some some change in their way that they code or they organize their? Uh, Absolutely, it changes the way you you write and ship code for 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 certain because you know developers are used to writing code like. Like as though it's in a black box, right? It's just like you send it off and you wait to get alerted. You wait to get paged. You wait to see if it's okay, right? They haven't had the ability to just kind of like inspect and and go, is it actually running? Is it doing what I expected it to do? Does anything look weird? You know, we, we encounter customers all the time or people who are trying out Honeycomb. And it's like you lift up the corner of the carpet and all of the, all of the little bugs just go like squirrely out because... There's so many things wrong with your system right now that you have no idea about. You just don't even know they exist until you add the right instrumentation observability. And suddenly you're like, oh, shit. Oh, crap. You know, and, and, and a lot of times people will be like, stop rolling it out. We need to fix these bugs before we keep going. And it's like, they've always been there. Let's just get the rest of the observability rolled out because, you know, it, once you can see it, it's so easy to fix it. And when you can't see it, you're reliant on waiting for users to report it. And for it to get triage and for people to figure it out and get it into like your 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 bug, you know, your bug list or whatever. And that's just, you know, relying on users to tell you where your bugs are is really terrible. And it, and it means that, you know, most people who encounter bugs are not going to tell you about them. They're just going to like 
close the app or reload the page or move on or just be frustrated and never come back, right? You need to get ahead of that. You need to be finding them before your users are finding them. That means instrumentation and, and you know, and deploying quickly and, and observing your code through the lens of instrumentation. Yep, yep. And I guess that's a very good consequence of deploying more frequently is going to be that there is going to be much less technical depth if you do that rather than if you deploy infrequently. And especially in startups, well, in startups, you write a lot of code. It depends. Hmm? It depends on what you mean by technical debt. And not all technical debt is bad. Most technical debt is is good. You know, it's like it's like you can take out just like in the real world, you can take out debt to like buy your to, to send yourself to college. Like that's good debt. Or you could take it out to like blow it on a you know a super fast car when you know you live in the middle of nowhere yeah or or just to like you know take out debt for nothing but yeah. like it's it's it is good to take anytime you write a line of code you've taken on some technical debt right, right. So it's all about it's all about taking on wise debt and it's, it's about paying that debt down when it no longer serves yeah yeah and, and you've made a great point because you can go and pay you know for a college that is good and or for a diploma that is not going to serve you really so, and I think that especially in startups, the quicker the code reaches production and you validate it with your users, the more that you are going to, to write valuable code and not code that you think is good. And that's especially for startup in which a lot of code is thrown away because you do a lot of POCs and POVs with things that are not, uh, are, don't have maybe the value that you thought you had. So, uh, yep. so. Thank you very much, Charity. It was incredibly nice to talk to you. I, I, I learned a lot. And again, congratulations uh, for Thank everything you. that you... Nice to meet you. Yeah, for, for, for your book. And I do recommend it. I think there is a lot of knowledge that people can get from it, especially in understanding why such an, a system is required in nowadays and, and in nowadays yeah. applications. Good. Thank you very much. It's very nice to hear. Thank you. Thank you.